chapter 94 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson and this week we're going to get to know Pete, Dave and Bobby. To be fair though, only the last two are people. The first is a place. Last time we spoke of the peace of kings that was brought in by the Congress of Vienna following the wars with France. That peace buried many of the radical ideas that had inspired the French Revolution. A regressive conservatism was very much in charge. Even the British government, with a powerful parliament blunting the edge of the worst kinds of authoritarianism, had grown accustomed to taking draconian action against opposition. Initially justified by the war, but continued into peacetime, there were severe measures against the right of association or free speech, and frequent suspensions of habeas corpus, allowing detention without trial. When it came to rule by Parliament, the benefits were greatly enhanced if you were actually represented in it. For instance, we've talked about how the cotton trade was burgeoning at this time, and one of its great centres was Manchester. It had a population of 126,000 in 1821, and precisely zero MPs. By contrast, the constituency of Old Sarum in Wiltshire had two MPs, but only 11 voters at its last election, all of them absentee landowners. Such rotten boroughs shored up the power that class enjoyed in Parliament. An unskilled worker in a cotton mill, on the other hand, could only long for direct representation. He had to be satisfied with virtual representation, the idea decisively rejected by the American colonists in the previous century in which you relied on someone else to stand up for your interests. How well that worked was shown by Parliament enacting corn laws to keep imported grain out of the country until the domestic price rose above a certain level. That was great for the landowners who had such a powerful grip on Parliament. It wasn't so good for industrial workers who had to pay the higher food prices. The desire to fix all this led to growing radical movements. Some leaders were convinced that only violent revolutionary action was likely to be effective. That, of course, was exactly the nightmare of the reactionary groups in power after the Congress of Vienna. Other British radicals, however, retained their faith in the parliamentary system. They might whip up support at public meetings or in mass circulation newspapers, but the aim would be to apply pressure for change enacted legally by Parliament. One of these radicals was Henry Hunt, who was such a good public speaker he came to be known as the Orator. He favoured parliamentary reform and the abolition of the Corn Laws. He even backed votes for women more than 80 years before that dangerous measure was adopted. In 1819, a radical group, the Patriotic Union Society, invited Hunt to address a rally in Manchester on the 16th of August at St Peter's Field. That's the peat of this episode. Estimates of the numbers attending vary between 50,000 and 80,000. Many adopted an orderly, disciplined behaviour, but that looked almost military to the authorities who took fright. Frightened people don't behave well. This was a time before properly organised civilian police forces. When they saw the enthusiasm with which the crowd was reacting to Hunt's speech, the Manchester magistrate sent in yeomanry, 
tradesmen and shopkeepers acting as part-time soldiers in a poorly trained local militia. They waded in with their swords swinging to a rest hunt, injuring a woman and killing a child on their way. Then the magistrate sent in actual soldiers, the 15th Hussars, supporting the yeomanry to disperse the crowd. It tried to disperse, but infantry, with bayonets fixed, blocked their exit. A hussar officer apparently shouted at the omenry, by now out of control, For shame, for shame, gentlemen, forbear, forbear, the people cannot get away. Estimates suggest that up to 15 people were killed, and anything between 400 and 700 injured. In mocking reference to the Great Battle four years earlier, the massacre at St Peter's Field came to be known as Peterloo. The reaction to it from both government and reformers would set the path for Britain from then into the 1830s. So much for the bloody events associated with Peter. Let's now turn to David and his scintillating thought. David Ricardo was a splendid character, and by all accounts a great guy too, much liked by a wide circle of friends and by modern admirers as well. He was a Jew born to a family of immigrants from Holland with roots in Portugal. There's a wonderful museum in a former Portuguese synagogue in Amsterdam, which I strongly recommend if you're ever able to visit it. Ricardo's father was one of the small number of Jews authorised to hold licences as stockbrokers in London. Ricardo had little formal education. He went to work for his dad at the age of 14. This was still the time when such businesses operated out of coffee houses or taverns, and he acted as a runner or assistant for his father, learning the business that way. He then did something extremely bold. He fell in love with the daughter of a neighbour, Priscilla Ann Wilkinson, who happened to be a Quaker. A Jew and a Quaker, they were from two marginalised communities, so neither could hope for social advancement from the marriage, which nonetheless proved highly successful, lasting until his sadly early death and producing nine children. For marrying outside his religion, his mother apparently never spoke to Ricardo again, and his father disowned him. He converted to Unitarianism, the branch of Christianity that denies the divinity of Christ. So he joined yet a third marginalised group of his day. Ostracised by his family, he set up as a stockbroker himself, and did phenomenally well at it. The legend has it that he made his fortune by posting horsemen between the field of Waterloo and London, so he had news of the outcome of the battle long before anyone else. That meant that while others were desperately selling stock on the London Exchange, in panic at a probable victory for Napoleon, he was quietly buying it up at rock-bottom prices, knowing that the Allies had won. Sadly, it's a story from an obituary the Sunday Times later gave him and seems to have been completely invented. At least that's a tribute to his reputation for cleverness. In reality, he'd made his fortune two years earlier. He earned some more money at the time of Waterloo, but nothing like as much, so it just provided the icing on the cake. 
Still, that was enough for him to retire at the age of 43 and devote himself to his passion, political economics. He'd come across Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations in a lending library in Bath and was smitten. Ricardo also had a close friend who was a living authority on economic issues, a man whose name is probably a lot more familiar to you than his, Thomas Malthus, for whom Malthusianism is named. It was he who made population a central concern in economic and political theory. He believed that any increase in prosperity inevitably led to a growth in population, especially among the poor. Food supply never grew fast enough to keep pace, so it was impossible to avoid a return to poverty. However, though Ricardo was swayed on some points of detail by his friend, on most matters they disagreed. From Adam Smith he took his attachment to free trade and to the labour theory of value, that the value of a good reflects the labour it takes to produce it. A particularly important element of his own contribution to economic theory was the notion of comparative advantage. This says that a nation should focus its attentions on what it does best. He argued that even if one country is better at producing both of two kinds of goods than another, it would be advisable if it focused on the one it did better and left the second to the other country. This means that one of the goods is being produced by a country that makes it less well, but he showed mathematically that both nations benefit under that arrangement. These ideas are still being taught to economics students today. A nation specialising its production in this way would be likely to create a surplus of its specific products and leave itself short of others it needed. It could solve that problem by selling its surplus to other countries and buying the goods it needed from them. Following Adam Smith, for Ricardo, the trade between those countries should be entirely tariff-free. He believed in turning his theories into practical action, so he took up politics as well as political economics. He bought himself a rotten borough in Ireland so he could sit in the House of Commons. Since he backed the radical demands to get rid of rotten boroughs, it's ironic that he chose to represent one. But then, in his economic theory, he denounced landowners as parasites on society, so it's just as ironic that one of the things he did with his fortune was by himself a landed estate. As a proponent of free trade, he opposed the Corn Laws. He also supported most points in the radical agenda for the reform of Parliament. Sadly, however, he died suddenly of an infection in 1823 when he was just 51, so he didn't get time to push his ideas far. Let's move on to Bobby. A new breed of men was beginning to appear in the upper reaches of British society. They'd made their fortunes in emerging industries, naturally including the one I've mentioned several times, cotton. They were sidelining the old craft weavers by moving production into machinery-driven factories. That was bad news for the weavers, many of whom found themselves unemployed and destitute, but factory owners could make fortunes. One of these fortunes belonged to the Peel family. The second-generation entrepreneur became Sir Robert Peel when he was made a baronet. That's a title of nobility, but just below the level for the House of Lords. He inherited a sufficient fortune to provide his son, another Robert, with a gentleman's education and a launch pad for a career in politics. The younger Peel was firmly a Tory. 
He cut his teeth in Ireland as chief secretary between 1812 and 1818. He came up with an interesting view of the right way to run Ireland. I believe an honest despotic government would be by far the fittest government for Ireland. He won himself a reputation as such a supporter of the Protestant ascendancy that he was nicknamed Orange Peel. Orange, from the Protestant King William of Orange, was the colour associated with the most fervent Irish Protestants. Whether he entirely deserved it is another matter. He also denounced Protestant excesses against disturbances in Ireland. In any case, one of the things that we're going to discover later about Peel is that he was a man not above changing his mind. On his return to Britain, he was asked to chair a parliamentary committee on the currency, the Bullion Committee. It investigated whether the link between paper currency and gold, bullion, should be re-established. It had been broken to allow more paper money to be issued to finance the war effort. Ricardo believed that free trade to operate well needed a reliable currency, what was known as sound money. A paper currency convertible into gold, where you could present a note at a bank and take away its value in gold, met that need. That's very much a psychological, subjective judgment. Gold has little real value outside jewellery making and, in more recent times, in some electronics work. It's a great conductor and it doesn't rust. But everyone believes in it and that underpins its solid reliability as the basis for a currency. Ricardo strongly backed a return to the convertibility of sterling to gold. Peel's committee agreed. The government, it proposed, should work over a four-year period to bring the money supply in line with the gold supply and then re-establish convertibility into gold. In the event, that only took two years and happened in 1821. His success made Robert Peel's reputation as a man with a future. That's why I'm saying no more about him now. The 1820s were when he emerged as a major figure. So never fear, if you haven't heard enough about him yet, you'll get the chance to hear a lot more soon. But first we're going to pause next week to look at Britain's commitment to free trade. We'll do that by turning our attention again to its imperial possession in India, where we'll find its trade wasn't always completely free. Thanks for listening. Yeah.